0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, thank you for coming today. I hope you find today helpful as we think about this subject. Um, and as we start, it's great to acknowledge, I think, that Christians have really been mis- have got, have had great misunderstandings in this whole subject uh, kind of throughout uh, history, uh, said things and done things which make Christians sound like they're anti-sex. Uh, so uh, Eves of Chartres, who was a, a bishop from um, around 1090, he said to have counseled Christians in this way, he said, abstain uh, from sexual intercourse on Thursday in remembrance of Christ's rapture, on Friday to remembrance of Christ's crucifixion, on Saturday in honour of the Virgin Mary, uh, on Sundays in commemoration of Christ's resurrection, and on Mondays out of respect for departed souls. Uh, so Eves of Chartres's uh, advice there. You can just imagine husbands, can't you, complaining to their, or their wives, complaining about husbands. All you ever think about is Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, that's all you ever think about. Uh, you, you get other people who've done things which have been uh, just frankly shocking. So Origen, who's a, a theologian in the early church, castrated himself uh, because he wanted to be free from sexual temptation. Um, and even after one of the, um, the creeds was written, the Nicene Creed, which is you know, when we sometimes say the creeds at church. And when they wrote that, they then had um, a number of canons, a number of laws after uh, for the clergy. And the first one said this. It says, if anyone out of sickness has been subjected by physicians to a surgical operation, or if he's been castrated by barbarians, let him remain among the clergy. If anyone in sound health has castrated themselves, it behooves that such a one, if already enrolled in the clergy, should cease from his ministry. And from henceforth, no such person be promoted. doesn't quite bear thinking about, it really. Uh, but people in the church have thought that at times. And you see why people then are uh, uh, justified sometimes when they say Christians have been anti sex uh, and they've tried to deny that whole aspect of us. And so, what we want to try and do is be really clear what the Bible says, because uh, that's where we're going to find out what God thinks um, on this. Uh, So we're going to try and do that through the day. So hopefully if you keep your Bibles uh, open and check these things as we uh, go along. Now while there is some confusion, the Bible is fairly clear in in other ways. In the words in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says to Christians, flee sexual immorality. It's It's fairly clear what he means. He says in Galatians that we are not to gratify the desires of the sinful nature... And he says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, and in verse 19 he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, debauchery, and so on. Or in Ephesians 5.3, but there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Colossians 3, put, there, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, that is, that which is opposed to God, and then he lists them. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. In Thessalonians, he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And you could go on in that way. You see, as followers of Christ, we are to be those who are avoiding sexual immorality. So while the church has got things wrong in the past, we mustn't avoid this subject. We must try and understand what it means And as much as the church has got it wrong, surely as we look around our world, we see uh, the mess that it's in as well. In a a Sunday Times article a few years ago, uh, you would have read of Tom, and I quote, Tom was nine when he first looked at porn on the internet. At first it was was a little secret, something he did every month or so. But by the time he was 12, in a way of boarding school, he was surfing porn sites on his laptop under the bed covers every night. He was 15 before he had his first sexual experiences with a girl. By that time, he had spent six years viewing porn on the internet. Almost everything he knew about sex he had learned from explicit websites. In the same article, Peter Watts, who works for Living Waters, is quoted as saying, Porn informs not just young men's views of sex, but their ideas about relationships. I'm increasingly talking to men who think that porn is a model for what relationships are all about. That real women behave like the ones they see on the internet. That's a disaster, he says. Or Gail Danes has recently read a book called How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality. And in an interview with The Guardian, she said, I found that the earlier men use porn, the more likely they are to have trouble developing close, intimate relationships with real women. Some of these men prefer porn with to sex with an actual human being. They are bewildered, even angry, when real women don't want or enjoy porn sex. I read an article this morning by a lady who first started looking at porn when she was 10 or 11. She had these ideas of a prince coming to rescue her, and she wanted to know what it would be like for a man to kiss her. So she, she searched as a, an innocent 10-year-old Um, a man kissing girl and she was exposed to porn and became addicted to that and filled with shame and grief that she had done that for so many years so it's not just a a man's problem or or listen to an interview that John Mayer uh, gave, uh, I found an extract on a blog post Uh, Mayer talking about pornography, he says pornography is a new synaptic pathway you wake up in the morning, uh, open a thumbnail page and it leads to a Pandora's box of visuals There have have probably been days when I saw 300 naked girls before I got out of bed. And so the interviewer says, but what's your point about porn and relationships? He answered, internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. How could you be constantly synthesising an orgasm based on a dozen shots? You're looking at the one photo of a hundred you swear is going to be the one to finish to, and you still don't finish. 20 seconds ago, you thought that photo was the hottest thing you ever saw, but you throw it back and continue your short hunt and continue to make yourself late for work. How does that porn not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? It's got to. The interviewer asks, You seem very fond of pornography. The mayor says, If when I watch porn, it's not hot enough, I'll make up backstories in my mind. My biggest dream is to write pornography. The playboy says, Masturbation for you is as good as sex. Absolutely, answers Mayer. I'm just going to run a film strip. I'm still masturbating. That's what you do when you're 30, 31, 32. This is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I would rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. You see, this is where we are as a society being educated by sex. And if we don't give expression to sex, we're told that we are somehow denying our humanity. And can I say for many of us that porn does fill the the images that fill our minds. In fact, how we've looked at the world and the fact that we've looked at them regularly shapes how we see the world. You see, sex is everywhere. Sex is in the open everywhere in our society. And you see just how that little bit of misunderstanding about sex has huge effects on people's Most of the guys who will have been educated in that way. And if the stats are right, one in three girls at the moment are accessing porn in the same way. You see, sex is being tainted by porn. It's one of the biggest problems in our society. And that's just one aspect. Then you've got the the way in which children are sexualised and pushed into sexualised ways of being and acting. Uh, porn styled adverts in which male domination is hardly blinked at uh, there's the t-shirts which guys will wear which you'll see uh, objectified images of women often being degraded uh, with their eyes blotted out you know, a world in which sex is both everything and nothing at the same time and where there's a pressure for us to conform do you not feel that? And so our world is in a mess and so we need to think, how are we going to be those as Christians who flee sexual immorality? And what that means and why we should do it. And so we're going to try and do that by uncovering the purpose and the beauty of sex as God designed it. So at, the, at the events week, I don't know who you were there for the, the sex talk that Gareth gave. Uh, one, one guy asked a question which was great. He says, do you just believe this because God says it? Or is there good reasons to believe it as well? You see, in one sense, it is right to believe something just because God says it. But what we'll see in the Bible is there's much more than God says to this. God shows us the reasons and the purposes why he has made it in this way as well. But before we go any further, I want to just stop and have a look at Psalm 51. or You can do that in your groups. Because I guess for many of you, you'll have listened to what I've said at the beginning and think, yeah, I've failed in that way. And as we go through this morning, you may think, yeah, I failed in that way. And the problem is you get depressed and you have feelings of guilt which overwhelm you. You realise you've not followed God's ways and standards. You've failed. You have not fleed sexual immorality. And others, you have been hurt incredibly in this year by other people through their evil behaviour and their own lack of self-control. And so as we come to today and to look at this subject... I want us to remember the gospel and to remember that we don't relate to God on the basis of our performance. We relate to God on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us to make us whole and righteous in God's sight. So if you fail, failed, confess it. If you've been abused and hurt, uh, seek healing from God who will judge all unrighteousness. And so as we start this day, just in twos or threes, um, read Psalm 51 and there's a couple of questions uh, there. You'll see from the heading, uh, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is actually, uh, uh, the heading of Psalm 51 is what was there in the original. And that's not been added by um, the Bible translators. often when you read Psalms, uh, or when you read the Bible you, know, you get the headings, they're often just been added by translators. The heading on Psalm 51 has not. And you'll see, therefore, the Psalm 51's um, about David who committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you remember the story, he was walking along his roof when he shouldn't have been there. He saw the naked Bathsheba, committed adultery with her and had her husband killed so that he could have her for his own. You see the terrible situation David got into. So read Psalm 51 and kind of twos or threes and there's a couple of questions. I'm not going to spend very long on this, but just have a, have a quick look. I think one of the difficulties that we have when we um, like start to look at this topic is where to begin. Uh, Often when you you read books they start with actually sex itself, Um, but what we actually I think we need to do is start with looking at what God's design for sex is, which is actually marriage. Uh, The proper place to start then is understanding what marriage is all about. You see, in contemporary discussions of sex, marriage is never uh, mentioned, never comes into things, and yet the Bible's presentation has uh, both the perspective of sex and marriage tightly interwoven. So, to get an understanding, we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2, particularly Genesis 2. Now, remember in Genesis 1 that God makes humanity, it's the pinnacle of His creation. He makes humanity, male and female, He created them. And then when you come to chapter 2, it's almost as if you kind of you zoom in and get a little bit more detail about what was going on and what was happening, so that we can understand. The perspective that you see in these verses is endorsed. And repeated in G by Jesus, and you'll see a, a couple of references uh, on your sheet, uh, where he picks up both uh, the things which we'll look at this morning. Both what chapter 1 says, um, and chapter 2. And so in chapter 2, verse 18, uh, you read this. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. And then when you, if you look on, what you see is that God then brings all the, the animals to Adam. Adam looks at all the different animals. Now, that's been quite an experience for Adam. You imagine all the animals being paraded in front of you and, and then him getting to um, name them all. The tiger and the buffalo and then the ant and then the spiders and the platypus and the armadillo. All these things coming before Adam and him naming them. An exciting situation. And yet, the conclusion of it all in verse 20 is before Adam no suitable helper was found." Now Adam looks at all the things in the world and nothing that was suitable for him was found. Every creature in the world has gone past him but nothing corresponds to him. Which incidentally is why bestiality is wrong. You see, but God then makes the woman for Adam. And then in verse 23 you read this. This is now bone of my bone flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. Now Adam declares, here at last, after seeing everything in the world go past him, he says, here at last is one who corresponds to me. One who fits. The one who was needed by him. The man and woman. Now without resorting to year seven biology, Adam realises that this new woman fits in the way that no other animal did. In the way which no other man could have done. She is equal to him but different in such a way that she fits with him. And then it leads in verse twenty four to the marriage. Now you see the the connection for this reason. You see at the beginning of verse twenty four there. For this reason because of verse twenty three, because here is the, the person who is equal but different to Adam, for this reason the marriage relationship follows. And the, these verses outline explicitly, the outline the nature of marriage, the structure of marriage. And you see three things. You see the first thing that happens. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother. There's a, a leaving. There's a general principle here. It has to be a general principle. If you remember Adam and Eve, they're the ones who don't have parents. So they're not, they're not physically leaving parents at that point. The word could be, as you talk about leaving, an abandoning. They're abandoning one family and starting to create a new family. Abandoning one family unit and starting to create a new one, a new unit in society. And it's more than just coming to university, for example. It means that your primary identity is now no longer going to be with your family, but with this new family, and that's displayed in the wedding service. Now, I don't know if you've, if you've been to a wedding recently. You know how the, the father of the bride walks down the, the aisle with the bride. And then he gives her away. A, an, an image of that leaving. Now, this is the, the bride is now leaving the family to join with the husband. Yeah, so there's the leaving. And then secondly, you see that there's a uniting. Then the man will be united to his wife. Now, the leaving happens at a point of time, but this uniting keeps on happening. Uh, although it begins at a point in time at the wedding, it then continues after that. It goes on without interruption. Uh, and the word therefore, for the uniting speaks of a, a binding together, a bonding together. a uh, Uniting. <laughs> this may be a, a romantic way to uh, describe it. Uh, in the Old Testament, the same word is used of a skin disease which you can't get rid of. The skin disease sticks to you and you can't get rid of it. So when you get married, it's like getting a skin disease. Uh, but the idea is meant to be, this is not a like commitment. It's not a transitory thing. This is something which is meant to be for life, sticking together. Um, not to be broken or changed. A deep-seated clinging to the other. And as you, as you can see, as the Bible progresses, you can see that's one of the fundamental marks uh, of a marriage, is this uniting and this faithfulness to the uniting. A radical and focused faithfulness. If you think of the marriage ceremony, the words which, which you say, the minister will say, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife? Will you love her, comfort her and keep her? In sickness and in health, forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto her as long as you both shall live. You see how radical the, the relationship there is in sickness and health, forsaking all others, be faithful to her and no one else. You see, that's the uniting. No casual relationship here. And then the third thing is they will become one flesh. Now, in some ways, this is linked to the uniting, but I think it is separate and it has much more of a sexual element. You see, the sexual union happens at the end of the process. And it's the external sign of the internal uniting together. The man and the woman are committing to the uniting. You see, all the communities see the the uniting. And you see that in the marriage ceremony. The, the society, the, the groups of people around see, yes, this is now a new uh, relationship. Uh, and yet then that is endorsed by the husband and wife as they come together and have sex together. And the sex binds them together in a way which nothing else could. And so you see the horror and the pain that so-called revenge porn causes in that regard. now Have you seen that in the news recently, how, what happens when some people break up and people post pictures on the internet? And the hurt and the pain that that causes is because the relationship was one of trust and yet that has been broken and violated in such a horrible way. You see that the uniting that, that sex brings brings a uniting at a really deep level, which is the one of the why we see all those things being so terrible and you see that this is a really important part of the marriage as well. this becoming one flesh this uniting in, in, in in the sexual union, the bonding which that brings. You see, marriages are not designed by God to be sexless. We'll think about this a bit more in a little while. But they're meant to be full of sex. The marriage relationship is meant to be consummated. Indeed, that used to be, it's been changed now with the the same-sex marriage debate, but that used to be a reason for divorce would be an unconsummated marriage. Terribly, the the same-sex law, the marriage law, has taken that provision away But you see, the consummation of the marriage is really important. And that sexual relationship is meant to continue throughout the relationship. So let's just pause and reflect. We've seen God's design for sex here. God has designed sex for marriage. And marriage has got these three elements. The leaving, the uniting, and then the becoming one flesh. And the order is non-negotiable. It happens in that way. Leaving, uniting... One flesh. It's not the other way around. And so let me just indicate a couple of uh, implications for this. The uh, first thing to see is that marriage is public. Now, there has to be some uh, public recognition, uh, recognition that a, status, uh, a change in status has occurred. Now, this is one reason why just living with somebody is not a replacement to marriage. It doesn't have that public endorsement of the marriage it's not a public leaving and a public uniting you may see in many ways sex in the bible involves an open change of social status and then the sexual union happens in private between the man and the woman and yet in our society everything's back to front you get together with somebody that you want to as you decide and you move in with each other that's your private decision and yet on the other hand sex is everywhere in society you see, it's kind of flipped on its head the biblical order. So marriage is meant to be public. And secondly, also just see here the myth of compatibility. You see, this argument goes that sex is so important. I need to make sure that I'm going to be compatible with my uh, future partner. But you know, there is evidence to say now that those who've lived together before marriage are much more likely to get divorced. So Guy Brandon says, even couples whose cohabitations progress to marriage are significantly more likely to divorce, perhaps up to 50%. And to those who think cohabitation is the same as marriage, he says, past surveys have shown that half of all cohabitations in the UK last under two years, ending in either separation or marriage, and just 4% last for 10 years. On their own terms, when they're not a prelude to marriage... Cohabitations are around four times more likely to break down than marriage. About 18% in the last ten years. You see, so from a purely secular statistic, checking the compatibility doesn't work. And you might argue that you've seen cohabitations work well, and you might have said I've seen marriages break down, I've seen wives abused. And that is entirely true. And yet it doesn't the anecdotes doesn't mean that it makes marriage a wrong thing. And you see in the very next chapter of Genesis, that mankind, Adam and Eve, will reject God, they will try to become God, and what you will see is that awful sinfulness flows from that, and much of it is sexual sin, if you read on in Genesis. And yet God's ways are still the best ways. Now Christa for us is a, a great illustration of our, uh, the situation that we are in now. And he says, imagine a highly ordered town in which an earthquake has hit. He says, the main lines of the street are still usually the best way to travel. Even though we know we may encounter obstacles that ought not to be there, and indeed an apparently clear path may open up through a former building, a path that ought not to be there. Although there is disorder in the ruins, it is is disorder superimposed on an underlying order. It's like this with created order in our age. And she said God's ways are still the best ways even if there may be difficulties and if there may be other paths that open up. Um, So, you what, let's break there for coffee and then we'll we'll come to think about God's purpose in the next section. Shall we do that? Shall we have a coffee? Let's do that. And there's also some cakes and stuff as well. So so we've seen God's uh, design for sex. But what's God's uh, purpose in uh, designing it in this way in, uh, for marriage? And for to do this, we need to still be in Genesis 2. Now why marriage? What's, what's marriage for? Uh, if you read again verse uh, 18, you read uh, the, the words, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a sel- helper suitable for him. Now, understanding this verse, we need to observe carefully uh, what's being said. It's quite a, it's quite a striking verse. If you've been reading from Genesis 1, and you get to this point, and you hear God say something's not good. And up until this point, everything in creation has been good, it's been very good, and yet now God says something's not good. And so you need to work out what is the thing that's not good. And many people see here a pointer to Adam's loneliness. And so poor Adam was all alone and his pet line was not enough for him. And so God creates him a woman to get married to. And you see, that means, therefore, it's not good for Adam to be alone. And the purpose for the marriage is a solution to loneliness. And so God creates marriage and sex so that Adam would have his needs for loneliness and relationship met through that sexual union. And so the institution of marriage is God's remedy to human loneliness. Now that may resonate with some people really strongly, that you're not complete in the desire to have someone to love you and care for you. You long to be in a relationship with somebody who will fulfil you in this way. And, if you feel, and some, For some people they feel if, not, if they don't get married they feel like they have failed in some way and doomed to a life of loneliness. Now that would be a natural implication if that was what the verse meant, but I don't think it is. Now, I've been really helped by Christopher Ash on this point. He says this. He says, The Creator understands the human heart with its longings for fellowship, but it's not at all clear that sexual relationship is his general provision to meet these yearnings. On the contrary, God's general provision for human loneliness appears to be friendship and fellowship, both with God and with fellow believers, rather than marriage necessarily. And that is the case for the wider Bible as well. And so what does it mean when we get here and it says it is not good for the man to be alone? Well, read from the beginning of Genesis 2, from verse 4 in this account, and we start to see, I think, what it means. Look what it says from verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being." Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all the trees, uh, sorry, made all the kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, from where it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. You notice at the start there, uh, there, the world is made, but there are no trees or plants. And it's not because there's a lack of water. Uh, rather, it seems to be that there's a lack of someone to work the ground and care for it. And so Adam is made, and he's given the task of working the ground, of caring for the world. You see that particularly in verse 15. Adam's put in the garden to work it and take care of it. He has a task to do. And then you see in verses 16 and 17 that Adam is made with a responsibility to God to live under God's rule. So you see the twofold purpose of of Adam as he's created here. To care for and work the earth and then to live in obedience to God. And so when, in the very next verse, we hear it's not good for the man to be alone, the context suggests that what we are to see here is Adam needs someone to help him in caring for the world and someone to help him in living in obedience to God. And so we see that Adam needs a helper, someone to help him in that task. And so God makes Eve. And you see the unbridled joy of the man with his new wife. And we see it's not merely the joy of companionship. It's that here is someone who can join him in the work, together in the task of working the ground and serving God. So ultimately the purpose of marriage is to look out to achieve the purposes of God in the world, together, as equal but different members of that marriage. Now the fall wrecks the immediate goal But remember what the focus of Genesis becomes, and you read through Genesis, you get to chapter 12 where God speaks to Abraham and says that he is going to bless the world through offspring that he and Sarah will have, blessing and life that will come ultimately through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You see, so now the the orientation of the Bible is not through developing the world, but through spreading the gospel, and that's what a marriage is to be focused on. Christian marriages are to be those which are focused on working for God in the world through spreading blessing in life of the gospel. And, and see, so when we think about God's purpose for marriage, we must see it's not primarily to meet human needs for companionship and loneliness. That's not the primary way that God meets those needs. Well, so you've seen God's design, God's purpose. Third, let's look at sex in marriage. You see, as we come to the last point, I want to think about what is the purpose of sex in a marriage. You see, I think we can think that we get married so that we can have sex. As if God created marriage to be the cage for where sex is to go into. But I want to show you that much more than that actually created. Uh, sex is actually created for the strengthening of a marriage. The purpose of sex is for marriage. And so turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I think we'll see some of this. And so 1 Corinthians 7 in the New Testament, uh, we read in verses 1 to 5. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. So that's what the Corinthians that are saying it's good for a man not to marry or it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, Then Paul answers, he says, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, so this is a, a section one created where Paul is addressing matters which they wrote to him about. Uh, and the issue here is, people are saying, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, or not to have sexual relationships uh, with a woman. And then what Paul does, he addresses people who are married. Each man should have his own wife and each woman his own husband. It's not saying everybody should get married at that point, but saying within the marriage, um, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Uh, The instruction is written for uh, those who are married, and it's quite striking what Paul says. In, in short, Paul says that husbands and wives should not deny each other sexually. And it's quite straightforward. A marriage needs sex. That seems to be what Paul is saying here. And It's not over-romanticization, this. A marriage needs to have sex. And the command to have sex in a marriage is mutual. Did you hear that as we read through? The husband and the wife are not to deny each other. So the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. You see, it's something which is a mutual thing, which they're not to deprive from each other. It's essential for a marriage. It binds the marriage together. And so rather than saying it's good for married people not to have sex, Paul says they need to have sex. Marriages are meant to be full of sex. It strengthens the relationship which helps the husband and wife achieve the many purposes which marriage has. The marriage relationship is outwardly focused on the marriage partner and the marriage needs to have sex to maintain that. Now Paul does, you see in verse 5, Paul does kind of grudgingly say you can abstain for sex but only for a time. You can say, actually, we're going to decide not to have sex for the rest of our marriage. No, if you're married, you can't do that, Paul says. Only for a short time and only to devote devote yourselves to prayer. And then you come back together again. You see, so sex is for marriage. And marriage is for many things. Sex is for the benefit of marriage. Okay, well, let me highlight just a couple of implications from what we've seen there's no human need for sex the Bible doesn't agree with the propositions that as humans we need to have sex there's no human need for sex in the same way that a car would need fuel to function now that view would say that we can't be whole or truly human without regular access to sex we don't need to have sex to be truly human people Here's why one writer put it. Sex is a drive, not a need. We need air, food, sleep and water to exist. Sexual expression is optional. John Stott said this. He was a, a minister down in London for many years. He died a couple of years ago. Yeah, but he was a single throughout his life. And he said this. He says human sexual desires can be very strong and they're made stronger by a sex-obsessed culture in which we live in the West. But we Christians must insist self-control is possible. We have to learn to control our temper, our tongue, our greed, our jealousy, our pride. Why should it be thought impossible to control our libido? To say we cannot deny our dignity to say we cannot is to deny our dignity as human beings and to descend to the level of animals which are creatures of uncontrolled instinct. You see, we don't have a need for sex. And actually you can make that point even more strongly by looking at the Lord Jesus. The most truly human person that ever lived never got married and never had sex. Okay, a second implication. Sex is for marriage. Therefore, any expression outside of that fails to achieve the purpose for which sex was designed. You see, God designed sex to be for marriage, for the strengthening and building up of that marriage relationship. And so any expression outside of that doesn't achieve the purpose for which it was created. So adultery doesn't help a marriage. Homosexual sex doesn't help a marriage. Sex outside of a marriage doesn't help a marriage. They're actually failures to represent God's good purpose for sex. You see, so far from trying to cage sex, we're saying that actually the purpose and design of sex, the thing it was designed for, was for a marriage, and therefore it can't achieve that outside of a marriage. And so be really clear on what we mean by sex at this point. It means any sexual expression outside marriage. And not just sexual intercourse in the missionary position. No, oral sex... Outside marriage doesn't achieve the purpose God created it for. Mutual masturbation doesn't achieve the purpose God intended. Getting into situations where you are sexually aroused with your um, boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't achieve the purpose for which God intended. That person might be your girlfriend or your boyfriend or a stranger. It doesn't achieve the purpose for which God intended. Watching porn doesn't achieve the purpose for sex that God intended. You see, so as we are Christians who are wanting to flee sexual immorality, that means we're going to flee all those different things. Any sexual expression outside of marriage. At last, let me just kind of say that sex education, though, is not wrong. You know, as a, a married couple, and people who are possibly going to get married in the future it helps to know what sex is about before you get married. At the very least, have an understanding of each other's anatomy. Uh, How to bring uh, pleasure to another person. Uh, And indeed, many married Christians may need to have sexual therapy to help them in their marriage. Because uh, sex for a marriage is really important. So we may need to uh, help them in that way. Marriage sex can be really tough at first. Hollywood presents... Uh, the heights of sexual ecstasy, ecstasy, which generally happen through adultery or through an illicit affair. Best sex is actually achieved through many years with the same partner. So be really aware of the myth that Hollywood presents in that way. Do you know if you think about what Hollywood presents, dull sex in Hollywood is the married couple who've been married for years. That's dull and boring. What is exciting though is when the man and the woman have an affair and when they get together. When the hero and the heroine save the day and end up in the se- passionate sex scene. That's where it is seen as passionate and exciting. People have been married for years. is dull and boring. That's not the reality and we have to be really clear um, about that. Okay, so God's design for sex is marriage. God's Purpose for marriage is that it would be outwardly focused on serving others. And sex is for marriage to strengthen the relationship and to enable the service of God. Okay, let's just, um, with the person next to you, why don't you just have a, a chat about that and see if there's any questions. And we'll try and answer any questions maybe at the end and we'll look at the second session in a moment. So it's about a couple of minutes.